Welcome to The Lead, the New Alliance magazine podcast. I'm Joshua Martin, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. In August 2020, a catastrophic port explosion tore through the city of Beirut, leaving more than 200 dead, thousands injured, and 300,000 without homes. More than half the buildings in the city had been damaged in some way, some as far away as 10 kilometers from the epicenter of the blast. The neighborhoods of Jemezi, Ashrafia, and Mar Michael were not nearly so far away, and their historic buildings bore much of the worst of the destruction. Lebanon's ancient capital is renowned for its history, and Beirutis take particular pride in their city's almost unparalleled heritage, something that unites them across the country's deep religious and social divisions. Fearing that they might lose it forever if they didn't act, a massive volunteer effort began to protect, restore, and preserve the historic buildings and artifacts that had been caught in the blast. It was hard, painstaking, and inspiring work. I'm here today with our culture editor, Lydia Wilson, who covered this effort for New Lines back in August 2021. You can find her piece, In a Sea of Broken Glass, Beirut Museum's Work to Preserve Their Antiquities, on our website, newlinesmag.com. She's only just back from Beirut, where she was finally able to see the results of that work for herself and catch up with some of the volunteers who made it happen. And catch up with some of the volunteers who made it happen. Lydia, how are you doing? Hi, Josh. Great to be here. So to start us off, could you tell me a bit more about this restoration effort? I mean, how did people first come together? What did the process of restoration look like? And I guess, most of all, what made the volunteers so passionate about what they were doing? Well, you know, I think the blast was just so very traumatic. For the longest time, people didn't understand what had happened. They didn't know if they were being bombed or if there'd been some sort of massive suicide explosion. I mean, there, the destruction was just so massive, people couldn't really get their heads around what had happened. And in the immediate aftermath, everybody was just helping each other because there was so little help coming in from the state. So uh, people were helping each other sweep up glass, for example, and patch up their apartments, their houses, their shops as best they could because there was no glass left in the country. You know, Lebanese don't make their own glass and there wasn't enough time to import enough to replace everything that was broken. So everyone just pitched in. It was kind of community at its best, at its strongest. They didn't have an alternative but to help each other. And I think in amongst all that, people were really aware of how much had been lost, how much had been destroyed. And so I think it was a natural step to then particularly step in for the heritage. So in the historic areas that you've already mentioned, the Jemeze and, and Ashrafia and Mar-Michael especially, uh, people were very quick to, to, to try and, and, and preserve or you know at least kind of protect from the rain that was coming the historic buildings there because so many have disappeared already from development so I think it was all part of one massive effort to help each other and to help heal the city. And where was the international community in all this? Because you said that they didn't really get any official support from the state but was there an international relief effort as well going on here? There was yeah, a lot of people swept in, actually. There were a lot of different NGOs that are focused on culture. Uh, Blue Shield, uh, Prince Klaus Foundation, many of those sorts of international not-for-profit organisations offered materials, expertise, money. And then UNESCO came in very quickly. Uh, and also the world's museums offered help immediately. There were coordinated efforts around the world to send things like... Uh, 
emergency cases to put things in. People were flown in to kind of help with emergency restoration because that's a specialism in itself. And also, yes, all the materials that were needed, the glass came in planes from a lot of the world museums. And as you sort of said there, heritage is particularly important to a lot of people in Lebanon, which makes the threat that it's under all the more tragic. So why does it matter so much? I think it always matters in any kind of crisis situation, and that includes war and natural disaster. We've seen it a lot in the earthquake, the massive earthquake of Turkey and Syria. People feel as though the loss of their past is a loss of connection, a loss of connection to the land that they're living in, that this is... There's an idea that this long history in a place really roots you in a place. And to lose that is to lose your connection and to a, to a certain extent your identity. And that's, by the way, why there are so many international NGOs that were ready to help because they're used to working in these sorts of situations that they have gone into war zones and earthquake zones uh, to, to preserve heritage because it's an added part of the trauma for a lot of populations. They're already losing so much. They're already living in a state of anxiety and stress and to lose their identity on top of all of that is 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 a way of kind of reinforcing that trauma and so i think it's a very natural thing to to yeah. want to do is to try and preserve as much as you can immediately yeah so it sort of it wasn't really about the artifacts themselves was it i mean when you were writing this story i think you actually used it earlier there um one of the volunteers described it as about trying to heal the city trying to collectively seal heal the city and another sort of talked about it as a healing moment it's a word that kept coming up a lot healing yeah that's right i mean it is about the objects though because the objects symbolize so much you know these 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 things in museums they it it's odd when you see them in this context of fragility because you suddenly start seeing them as as survivors that have come through, say, say a, a Roman object. It's already survived 2000 years in Lebanon through all of those odd vicissitudes of fate, whether it's been bought, sold, used, broken, buried, stored and forgotten about, locked in a chest and whatever, buried until somebody came back when they never came back. And somehow it's ended up in front of you in a museum. Mm. And you suddenly start realizing how tenuous all these links are to the past. So there is a desire to hold on to these objects that, that, that link you, however kind of fragile those threads are, they are reaching back to a deep past of Lebanon. And I suppose also in Lebanon in particular, there really was the sense of, of overcoming, I think you said it in the introduction, overcoming those divisions in society that are yeah. still widespread. I mean, it's officially a sectarian state in that the politics is explicitly sectarian. You know, the president is always Christian, for example, prime minister always Sunni. So there are these very deep divides in society, politically and socially. And heritage is one of th those things. If you go far enough back, those divisions aren't there anymore. These, these, these sectarian divides didn't exist. And so to a, in a very real way, it's something that's genuinely shared. It's Lebanese, it's, it's regional, it's Arab. There's something that goes beyond the present divisions. And I think that was very much present in a lot of people's minds while they were trying to do the mending process. Right. Um, so a big part of the work was focused on the Museum of Archaeology at the American University of Beirut which has a mm. truly quite priceless collection of artefacts, and many of them were damaged or destroyed 
by the blast. Um, and as part of this massive restoration effort, the curator, Nadine Panayot, put together a team to try and put as much as she could together. I mean, that must have been a difficult thing to do, even in the best of circumstances, like much less than the wake of a disaster like that. Uh, yes and no. I mean, Nadine is a... Uh, an, an amazing figure in the in the museum world in in Beirut. She's she's founded kind of masters programs in museum studies, something that Lebanon hadn't had before, and so she had a bank of her ex students to kind of draw on, you know, people that she trained herself, and of course they all had friends who were interested. So and there was this outpouring, a need to help. There was people talked about being grateful for the opportunity to be part of preserving and rescuing the heritage. So yes, Nadine was already well connected, but also I think on the other side there was this this desperate need to help. When you were back in Beirut just recently, you actually had the chance to talk to her again about the cleanup, didn't you? Yes, I did. I got to go back to visit and see all the work that she's been doing. Thank you for joining me, Nadine, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lydia, for having me over. Now, last year, you told me about the role of heritage in Lebanon, telling me that it's something you all truly have in common, that it is a shared past that can unite basically all 18 sects that make up Lebanon. A shared history is a shared identity. Do you still agree with that? I agree with that, but I also add to it new experiences that we've learned from the pandemic and from the economic crisis, uh, from the explosion of the port of Beirut. I mean, all of these experiences, although painful ones, I mean, we have lessons to learn from them. And I think I have learned a few more lessons from these tragic events. Um, Such yeah. as? Such as, I, I believe more than ever that heritage, if anything, helps you create meaning to your lives. Right. It helps you connect and it helps you heal. And heritage, per se, has a healing role. Um, this is something that has been recognized by UNESCO years ago. And the more you live with it, I mean, just like after the... Uh, Beirut port explosion, what we have experienced right here at the American University of Beirut Museum was really a healing experience through the conservation and the restoration of our lost heritage. And this was really a learning lesson. I did not expect that. I was just concentrated on trying to salvage whatever we could save from the destruction. And then by doing so and by bringing people together uh, volunteers, students, and experts around this task, giving them one objective, one mission. Believe it or not, it had this healing effect on all of us. For the longest time, you know, I used to read about the effect of, of heritage uh, on, on the psyche. But when you live through the experience and you actually feel the healing, progressing over the days and months and then years, then you start measuring the importance of that heritage. So it's more important than ever, is what you're saying. Absolutely. And the worse the financial situation gets, the more important heritage becomes, in my opinion. Now, you've just taken me to the museum and it's been incredible to see it, especially knowing how damaged it was in the 2020 explosion. But there's also something just a little bit unsettling about things looking so normal. 
when the situation here in Lebanon is really anything but. Now, I felt this a couple of days ago when I was wandering around the areas close to the Port Gemese and Mamakhil and everywhere like that, and most of the houses looked as they did the last time I was here five years ago, or actually even smarter, some of them. Um, yet everyone is still feeling extremely raw because there's been no closure on any of this situation. Um, no investigation, no answers. And it's also the case when you walk through those massive wooden doors that we just walked through, they look like the originals, right? But you told me oh, they are exactly the same, but they're new. Absolutely. Can you talk a bit about this? Well, this is indeed, I mean, it's very controversial, but it is also what basically a lot of people say, you know, people call us, we're resilient, we're resilient. I think everybody can be resilient or has to be resilient when it's about surviving. Uh, we don't think about issues like that. We just survive. We try to survive one day at a time. And indeed, by doing so, you just keep walking, you know, and you keep building and you keep doing what you know uh what you have to do and then by doing so things look as if everything is okay but we all know that they're not i mean there is a, a huge amount of frustration among the lebanese population uh, we all know that most of the lebanese population can't eat many of them have lost their houses many of them cannot afford to pay rents anymore and so we are going through one of the most difficult crises it's a brutal one um, in French, we say pauperisation. It's just like turning the population into a very poor population. And I think this is also somehow politically driven. Mm -hmm. It's like there is a will to bring this population down to its knees. Mm -hmm. And so going through the daily routine and acting or playing make-believe somehow as if there is nothing wrong and just doing what you have to do consistently with perseverance and determination makes you someone who's resisting and someone who's actually actively engaged in survival in Lebanon. And this is what you have seen in Maram Khail and Jamezi. The people, the locals, the inhabitants of these areas have decided to restore, renovate, not give up and not sell their houses because believe it or not, right after the explosion, there were so many attempts of buying these old houses that were completely destroyed at a very cheap price. Mm -hmm. But luckily we had some visionaries who stopped, who did not allow the sales of these houses. Mm -hmm. And so it's still frozen now. You cannot buy or sell in these areas. Mm -hmm. And this is what helped the reconstruction. Well, then, do you think that there might possibly be a case to be made for not restoring everything? A friend here in Beirut recently said to me that the modern history of Lebanon has been a case of repeated brushing off, moving on, leaving things behind, not discussing, not sorting out, not resolving anything, but simply moving on. And he said, as a form of resistance, it might be important to keep traces of the violence alive. Would you agree? Of course, this is very important. I mean, this is what I've done. This is the decision I made. I restored these glasses. You know, we've lost uh, 72 uh, glass vessels dating back to the Roman period. So this might seem like nothing in the face of this huge loss of houses and, and businesses and, and historical buildings around the city. But this is very meaningful. This is very symbolic. And to me, I had to 
bring them back to life, so to speak, but by keeping their scars on them. Some of these pieces were sent off to the British Museum to be restored and repaired. I was always in conversation with the conservators and they asked me specifically if I wanted them to actually fill out the gaps in these vessels. And for each vessel, we had a long conversation because when it was structural, when it was necessary to fill out the gaps, because, you know, today, technically, we could fill out the gaps using a friendly material that is reversible. But I told them that when it was not necessary for the structure of the vessel, then they should not do it because I wanted to keep the scars of those vessels on them. And I call them scars and everybody has started calling them scars because this is exactly what they are, because they represent the scars of every Lebanese person, whether they are handicapped or if they haven't been really hurt physically, but every Lebanese person has been scarred by the spirit board explosion. And as you said, as long as there is no closure, as long as justice hasn't been made, I think these scars should be here and remain here to remind us of this horrific tragedy and of responsibility. So in a way, it's a telling of a history of loss, which is a sort of awkward concept for a museum to address. How do you think museums of the future will represent this period of Beirut's history? It's very important. You know, we're the third most ancient museum in the Near East, and we have survived so many wars. We have survived uh, direct shelling, actually, of the campus. But seeing it destroyed like this over corruption is important. I mean, this is also part of the history. This is part of the, today's life. This is part of the present. And this is the only way to connect the past to the present. So you tell me who would walk in into an archaeological museum in such a, in such a, in a city at loss today? Well, indeed, because when you go to these places of heritage, more precisely because it's archaeological heritage, this is when you are able to explore connections and to look at the past, the present, and the future. And this is when you can create meaning, or at least explore and show the people, push the people towards new perspectives, new perceptions, and let them think about their emotions, their beliefs, about the limits of heritage, and about the endless possibilities of heritage to unite. Well, then there's an obvious question about what's going on inside the museum right now, because you've got a temporary exhibition of very powerful contemporary artist. And I think that's maybe a surprise to some people to have an archaeology museum have an exhibition of modern art or contemporary art. So what do you think the link is there? For me, this is the only way to actually bring back archaeological pieces to life and to help students, learners, visitors, anyone who actually walks into the museum to connect. It helps you connect with your past by linking it to the present. It's like, it's like you're teaching a class today and you're talking about ancient Mesopotamia and you're talking about the Epic of Gilgamesh and you're talking about the flood. I mean, what better way of talking about the flood by actually taking a, a, a recent article that came out in the Times magazine or you know anywhere about the flood story, that's a current one, and global warming, and just connect. And this is what actually talks to the students. This is what makes them 
feel and understand the depth and the universality of the epic of Gilgamesh. And the visitors as well as students, I think, as well. That's the role of a museum, is exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. We are platforms of communication. We're here to help people think, uh, reconsider, connect with their emotions, connect with their past. We're not here to teach lessons, but we are here to help them contextualize and see different perspectives. And that's the role of a museum, in my opinion. And that's why, for me, having contemporary art exhibitions, even concerts and even theater plays at the museum is extremely important to contextualize some of the themes and some of the discussions and even some of the songs and concerts that actually take place in this museum. Well, you actually used a word there which was universal, and I think we might venture on a slightly controversial topic here by talking about different museums' attitudes to universal heritage, to universal humanity and those sorts of issues. And I think it's probably illustrated right here in Beirut because the National Museum of Beirut, um, not so far away, is actually to showcase Lebanese history specifically. Whereas here at the American University of Beirut's museum, you've collected regionally. You've got things from Iran all the way to, what, Egypt or further, or yes. the whole region. Do you think heritage basically also has the potential to bind people together across borders? That's my first question. We'll go on to the controversy. Of course it does. I mean, that's the point. Uh, well, you, you very well said, we are actually, as I mentioned earlier, we are a regional museum. We're the third oldest. So basically the museum grew at a time when it was under the Ottoman Empire. So definitely there was no UNESCO convention then. And, and this makes sense because actually this is a Mediterranean museum. We are a regional one, let's call it the Eastern Mediterranean Museum of Archaeology. And the only thing that it features are actually the connections across borders. I mean, you have pieces from Crete, you have pieces from Egypt, and some of them were not acquired in modern times and brought back to Lebanon. Some of them reached these coasts in ancient times. Yes. Yes. So this is part of the human connection throughout the ages. This you, is not something very recent. You didn't go to Egypt necessarily to collect them. They no. came here with the Phoenicians we or even, whoever traded. Or, absolutely. Yes, we yes. have gifts. We have gifts from the pharaohs to the kings of Biblos. Mm -hmm. And we have exchanges and we have tablets that ended up here because they are, you know, accounting tablets that traveled with the merchandise in 1500 BC. So we have this sort of exchange that was taking place throughout the ages. So turning all museums into national museums, featuring only the history of that country, has its own benefits, but its own limitations yes. as well, yes. because it's human beings, by definition, have diverse and multiple origins. So this museum was founded, what, in 1865? So it's not just the fact that you were under the Ottomans at that point. There are other differences. For example, there were no national borders, for a start. Exactly. And for a second, this was the American University. So you've got potentially very different influences coming in. I mean, I think the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York was only founded a few years later, wasn't it? Indeed. And so was it a, was it a project 
more of, of a different set of ideals coming in from America. Absolutely not. Actually, you have to keep in mind that because it is a university museum, then already the mission and the vision of that museum was solely educational. I mean, so this was really, truly to give a hands-on experience to students, not just in archaeology, but also in natural history, medicine, geology. So we have all these collections that were brought into this institution to teach students. And, and that's, that's the real mission of university museums. And so the perspective is, is different from larger museums and, and international museums. And, uh, and our ambition is still education and, and you know, explaining the controversies of, and, and showing the evolution of the history of art and all kinds of other um, schools of thoughts. Well, the reason this is controversial is, of course, because certain museums in the West collected mostly the, the vast majority of their holdings throughout their colonial periods and often in dubious circumstances, to say the very least. And they're holding them precisely in the name of universal heritage, a shared history of humanity, grouping different cultures under one roof. But in that name, they're refusing to give back many objects which were taken by force, even sacred objects. Now, do you think there's a case to be made for universal museums in showcasing humanity as a whole? Or do you think we should give things back? Or is there a happy medium? There's always a happy medium. I mean, having rules to return everything back is definitely not a solution because we have a shared past. So it's very important to actually show and feature that shared past. But by the same token, we cannot deny today the importance of decolonizing museums. And this is something that we have to, I mean, um, museum professionals are recognizing have recognized in most countries and it's very important to have a humble approach to that to look into our collections i receive emails from my colleagues across the world asking me for the provenance of one piece or another and these discussions have started so at least let's give credit to some of the museum professionals around the world who are actually facing these issues with a great sense of ethics and, and responsibility. And, uh, and we see it happening. Of course, there is resistance in few museums when it comes to upper administration, but you look at the researchers and the scholars, and there's so many of them who, who are just looking into ways and means of decolonizing museums. This is what we are doing ourselves. Although we were never a colonizing country, but we are looking into means and ways of decolonizing museums. One way of doing that, for example, is looking at women's voices. We are exploring all these possibilities. And in my opinion, this should be a case-by-case -case study for every object should be considered in its own story, in its own background. Some of them are absolutely, I agree with you, some of them should be returned and others not. It all depends on the context of every piece. Well, to bring it back to Lebanon and its own heritage, what do you hope for for the future of this museum? Well, uh, I really wanted to turn it into a very lively platform of dialogue, conversation and thought. And we join these international exhibitions. We have these exchanges. I would love to receive 
more artwork from different parts of the world. And I feel that heritage answers the international crisis of the loss of meaning. What I mean, don't you feel that the world is lacking and is starving for meaning today? All over the world we're seeing this need. All over the world. And heritage is one way of really filling out the gap. Culture, heritage, arts are here to break the boundaries and start new conversations and new connections connections and this can help you find meaning again oh well that's a wonderful note to end on and (laughs) thank you very much for joining us thank you lydia thank you again to nadine so lydia now that you've had the chance to see the results of the restoration work in person and to catch up with some of the volunteers. How do you feel? Like, what was it like being back there? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I haven't been back for five years, so I didn't actually witness the the destruction directly. Uh, but of course, I was talking about it, hearing about it so much during the year or two following the explosion that I was quite a I was quite aware of 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 what they'd lived through, um, albeit from afar. And so walking through the f- the first day I arrived, I kind of walked through all of those neighborhoods very close to the port. And what was very unsettling was how very normal it looked. And of course, restored housing is more than normal because it's so smart. You know, it's all the, the, the paint and the brickwork and all the rest of it were very fresh and new. And that was uh, almost jarring in, in, in conjunction with what people were telling me. Because in the last three years, there has been no closure. There's been no official investigation. Judge after judge has been stopped in their work in pursuing justice. And although there have been plenty of um, journalists doing that job, there hasn't been anything official. There has been no court case, nobody found legally responsible, culpable, blamable, all the rest of it. So there's been no closure. So that is very raw in the communities. Everybody speaks about this spontaneously. And yet on the face of it, Beirut is doing really well, which is 